You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. We live in a world that's changing so rapidly that even the world's greatest experts in whatever field it is, like their knowledge is getting stale every minute. And so we all have to be just constantly learning and constantly exploring. And that's the way that we're going to stay relevant and involved and engaged in this world that is, is going to change at a rate that is not only faster than ever before, but will constantly and always be increasing. If you are doing something in good faith and holding yourself to the highest standards and saying, well, if I'm going to make a statement, I better be able to back that statement up. That's the thing. So, Jamie, we did a, a great podcast a few weeks ago about your book, Hacking Darwin, which is all about your expertise in genomics and how fast and incredibly things are going to change over the next few. They're even changing right now because of genetic engineering and our studies of genomics. And nobody knows about this. I didn't know about it until I read this book and then spoke to you. But what I'm fascinated about is who the fuck are you? <laughs> yeah, I, I ask myself that same question every morning. Like, you know, I thought, okay, hacking Darwin about genomics, is this guy going to be a top MD, PhD who's done all this research? No, I mean, you're very impressive. You were in, uh, you, you know, you served in the National Security Council, the State Department, uh, you worked for the UN in Cambodia, you wrote a book about Cambodia, yeah. which is not at all related to genomics, and you wrote two science fiction novels. So, uh, but, but this book was so comprehensive and explained so simply about genomics and where our understanding is now, what's the technology, and of course, a sign of true knowledge is if you can explain something simply to someone like me. I'm just curious, and this is helpful to anything, if person A wants to learn person B, this, uh, wants to learn subject B, the standard script is go to school, go to graduate school, work in the industry, do research, be famous. And you said, nah, I'm gonna skip the whole entire line, that whole 10,000 hour thing, I don't need to do it. I'm just gonna be the world's expert on genomics. And now you give talks on genomics. Where are you, you're going to Geneva to give a talk on genomics, I'm right? I'm part of the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee. Why? <laughs> and, and two weeks ago, I was at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which as you know, is such an important lab in the, in the US uh, science structure. I gave a major talk hosted by their president to the top scientists at the lab. I speak at, at uh, medical conventions to hundreds and thousands of doctors. And it's, it's a great question. And the real issue is how do we learn? How do we know something? And certainly I come from a yes. medical family. 
everybody, they, they actually give me a lot of shit. About. It's like, hold on, why are you keynoting these medical conventions? But the fact of the matter is that, that it's great that we all become specialists. And it's, there's certainly a body of knowledge that people have to master, but you take medicine. People know probably as much as they're ever going to know academically at the moment when they finish their residency. And then for the rest of their career, many decades, they're kind of living off of that body of knowledge. And it's really difficult because you're seeing you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 patients a day when are you going to devote your time, not just to learning the nuts and bolts of what you need to know, but of the big picture? I mean, we are in this incredible age of super convergence where whatever your field is, it's being touched by so many other fields. In tech, people say, well, you don't even know who your competitors are because don't look at the people in your industry. Look at, at all the people who could disrupt where, where you are. And so for me, I think the core of expertise is just having an insatiable curiosity. And for me, it was 20 plus years ago when I came to this realization that the genetics and biotech revolutions were going to change the world and, and change our lives. And I hadn't taken a, a science class since high school. So, so, so you knew nothing. So first off, just a comment. Yeah. There is some evidence that um, the longer time has passed since a doctor got his medical degree, chances are the worst medical advice he gives. That's not always true. I don't want to say that about anything specific. It's just kind of generally that seems to be the research shows. And then the other research is, is to your point, uh, often when you combine ideas from several fields, you get better results. So so uh, uh, it sounds like a little bit of, of the direction where you're going, but where were you 20 years ago where, I mean, what were you doing? You were like working for in the Senate foreign relations? No, I was, on, I was on the U.S. National Security Council. So I was on the NSC. My then boss was this obscure to the outside world um, a White House official named Richard Clark. Um, and Dick was telling anybody who would listen, unfortunately it wasn't enough, uh, enough people weren't listening, or too many people weren't listening, um, that terrorism was something really big and really important. The United States needed to take this seriously to go after this group called Al-Qaeda and cut off its head, who was this unknown terrorist named Osama bin Laden. And after 9-11, Dick was this Cassandra. And so he was a Cassandra because he had, in many ways, predicted the future, and a Cassandra because he hadn't been able to do anything about it. And so Dick always used to say that you need to look around the corners. You need to try to see what are the things that you have the potential to see that other people aren't able to see because so many of us have the tendency just to, to use a, a kid's soccer analogy to kind of follow the ball. We see these kids' soccer games like everybody is bunched around the ball in, in one corner of the, of the field. But, but you have to know a lot. Like a lot of people predict things and are wrong. You have yeah. to know a lot and be able to assimilate a, no, a lot of knowledge together and a lot of clues together to, to kind of look around that corner. Like how did you, A, decide, like what, what ignited the fire inside of you to, to do the study of genomics and then you, it seems like you have to learn a lot yeah. to be an expert enough to be giving talks to the experts at Lawrence Livermore right. Laboratories, write the book that's the book now for genomics. Like, like A, what ignited the fire and how did you begin the learning process? You, you, yeah. you quickly learned in a way that uh, completely skipped the rules. You broke yeah. the rules. Yes. So one is you have to be open. And that's one of the expertise is this double-edged sword because once you think you know, once you think you have the answer, 
And especially if the answer is part of this established discipline that has been imparted to you. And when you get your degree, whether it's medical school or whatever. What was your degree in? My wife had a PhD in history and a law degree. Um, but once you, it's like the, the, what they're wanting to do is to induct you into the guild. And it's great to be in the guild because you learn a lot and you have these very powerful networks. Uh, but whether you're in the guild or outside of the guild, in my mind, the, the, the way you can see the things that aren't right in front of you is to kind of take a step back and question everything. And even question what is, what is delivered to you as just abs an absolute truth. And so for me at that time, I was just picking up these little clues. Uh, and, and the way my mind works is I just see a little thing and then I say, all right, well, what does that mean? And what are the implications? And if this is true, then what? And so that was, and so I'm just always doing that in life, but I started picking up these little different pieces of clues. And again, this was 20 plus years ago. This was way beyond, way before uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 system had been uh, developed and all these miraculous um, so, so innovations before the, the first human genome had been sequenced, but there were little cues. And so then for me, the reason why I think I was able to write a book like this, which is really written for everybody, is I wasn't able, I didn't have those shortcuts available to me. So that if you are being trained within some field of expertise, somebody has already figured out some issue and a way of communicating it and then they're giving you that little piece and you kind of build your, that brick and you're building a wall based on those bricks. Because I didn't really have any of those bricks, I had to construct them for myself. And that meant that to get to the next level, I had to really understand in my own way the, just the, the, the foundations. And so now when I'm communicating them to other people, I've had to understand them the way a regular person would understand them because that's what I am. But okay, S step number one, uh, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna just guess. You saw that genomics, the rise in genomics, uh, the power of genomics was increasing exponentially. Just by seeing the dollar amount it cost to sequence the human genome was being cut in half every year. And this was even before then. Even this before was that. yeah. So this, so certainly we we've, we've seen that. Um, but the 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 the, the uh, sequencing of the first human genome culminated in 2003 and cost a billion dollars. When I was starting to think about this, this was you know, six or seven years before then. And so the, the process had, was underway, but mo most people didn't know about it. So this was even before that. So what was the thing that lit, lit you know, What was the one thing that you're yeah. like, okay, this is it? I, I can't say that there was one thing, um, but it was a bunch of little things. And that's why everybody, I think, we have to be insatiably curious and whatever, even if you're the world's biggest expert in one area, you have to be learning across the fields of, of knowledge because that's where, that's how we can pick up all these little but, pieces. But there's so many things to learn and there's yeah. a lot of things that are boring to people. Everybody has a right. set of yeah. huge amounts of things that are boring right. to them. So what's step one? So step one for genomics or just for learning? Step one for learning. Step one is learning is read something boring. And the reason oftentimes it's bo things, boring things are boring, quote unquote boring things are boring to people is they're frightening. And so our brains just turn off. Like I, I have this, if I start reading kind of heavy statistics and think, oh, you know, this, it's, it's hard to weigh in. But boring things become interesting once you know a little bit about them. And so that doesn't mean that, you know, no person can understand everything, but 
in whatever field you're in, you will see little touch points where it's connecting to something else. Like I was up most of the night last night um, reading uh, about um, cattle husbandry. And so cattle hungry, it's like, well, I come from Kansas City originally. It's a, traditionally a, a cow town. I grew up among cows. But I wasn't, I, when I grew up, I think that doesn't, like cow breeding, that doesn't sound something like something interesting or exciting. So I didn't know that much about it. But now talking about the future of, of human genetics, if we want to know where our species is going, we should look at how cows are being bred. So, and, 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 and so there are like all of these pieces. And once you... Once you follow an idea, um, it will take you to the next place and you'll, you'll come up against a wall and you'll say, geez, this is something that I don't know about and I better learn about that. And then you go to that, that next place and then there's another wall and let's say it's cow breeding and saying, well, I, I need to understand about the domestication of animals uh, and then I need to understand, well, um, what is the history of human coevolution with animals? And it's just like each thing it's like a chain reaction, and we need to follow those chains. Right. So I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of almost formalize it. So it's almost like you have this hub idea, like, oh, you're curious about genomics. What are all the possible topics around this? And then whether it's boring or not, you start reading yes. bits and pieces about them. Like here's an article, here's a book, here's a scientific paper, and you start. It's almost like this spoke and wheel approach. You have this hub idea that you want to learn more about. Here are all the things connected to it. I'm gonna just start learning about them. What's step two? Like, how did you learn the, the kind of biology, the science of genomics? How did you start that? Because that's yeah. very complicated. You didn't know anything about biology. Yeah. And so basically, it's, it's a, as I was saying, you will, when you start doing that, as you move further away from your core, whatever it is, you will bump up against these places where you say, geez, I don't know about that. Um, I, in order to move forward, I have to know about that. Um, and for most people, you say, well, all right, well, then I'm just going to, I'm going to stop right here. Um, but it, we, uh, we are, are incredibly lucky. I mean, we're the luckiest people who've ever lived. If there's anything that you want to learn about, there's a, an avenue. We're the most connected, most literate. We have access to more information. And the, basically, it's the same thing. You start simple. Like, you, you start and say, well, I, wanna, I want to, to understand, um, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is. Like, like biology, how did you yeah. start? You had to learn biology to learn genomics, right? Right, right, right. So how did you start learning about biology? Did you get a textbook? Yeah, you... no, so, so I did get uh, textbooks. Um, you know, I'd taken, uh, not to, to give uh, Mrs. Mitchell from uh, Kansas City High School 10th uh, grade biology short shrift. So I had that little bit of, of background. Um, but then you can start small. So let's just say biology. Like if somebody says, well, I feel like I should know more about biology, but I had a bad experience in high school and it's kind of scary uh, for me. Well, what are the different things you can do? You can, you can um, go to Amazon and they have these books like biology cartoon books. They have little videos of biology made, made simple. What you kind of have to do is turn the unfamiliar into just remotely familiar. And then that's your new starting point. You say, All right, well, I have this little bit. And then you can kind of keep going further. And so now I'm going to do, was it hard to remember the things you were learning? Cause there was a lot of things you had to remember, not, like not, what not, a gene is, what a cell is, really, what a, but you, what a human is. Don't throw away your old cartoon books. Like even I have those books. But, like, okay, but books. you're right. There's like biology for dummies. There's yeah. biology for kids. There's textbooks. There might be kind of popular science yeah. books about biology. So let's say there's five or six books. There's whatever. Yeah. Uh, so you start reading them. 
Do you remember them? Do you remember? I, I do, but sometimes I need a refresher. And now I'm at this stage where I'm actually spending a lot of time reading really technical scientific research papers. And it's kind of thrilling to be able to read that kind of stuff, to really understand it. And it's like, wow, I, I got here on my own. And then that's the other thing is confidence that we are all told to have confidence in your field and don't have confidence when you step outside of your field. And, I, and my feeling is like, you shouldn't have confidence about stuff you don't know at all. But as you learn more, you can have more confidence and that gives you more courage to, to go further. So what's, what was step three? So you, you got all the, you, you kind of gave yourself a refresher course of right. biology and because you were able to focus on it rather than a half hour a day in high school, uh, you probably, and you had this interest kind of fueling, right. which helps memory when, right. you're, when you're actually interested in something, it's probably easier to, to assimilate and make the connection. Right. What was step three? What was the next step in your So learning? the next step, once I felt like I, I understood the principles pretty well, then I melded these new principles that I was learning and the world that I had come from that I knew really well. And that was kind of my entry point into this world is when I started writing articles for policy journals like Foreign Affairs and others about the intersection of biology, my new world, and national security. Like what was your first article uh, intersecting these two? Yeah, things? so, so again, one this is intersection it, yeah, yeah. of where you put your exactly. 10,000 hours in, exactly. now you have 100 hours in biology. Well, no, it's 10, more than 100, but yeah, I, I, my 10,000 were in national security. That was yeah. my, my background. I had less, more than 100, less than 10,000. Um, and so then I put those together and then I started writing articles. Like I had a piece in 2007 that came out in the journal Democracy and, and I felt like I was saying something that was really new because it was like chocolate and, and peanut butter. The, the national security people didn't know biology and the biology people didn't know national security. And so now I had forged this new place for myself. And that was when I had this incredible moment that Brad Sherman, who was then and, and still is a, a congressman um, and, and was then uh, chairman of a subcommittee of the House International Relations Committee, he just called me up on my phone and said, hey, I just read you this article. Um, this is really important. No one's talking about it. I want to do congressional hearings based on your article. Will you be the lead witness and help me organize the hearing? And so then, like I had, I had come from this world that I knew, this world that I was beginning to know, and I created, in many ways, this new place. And that was, was my place. about? It, it was about the national security implications of the biotech and genetics revolutions. What was your conclusion? That it was going to have huge implications uh, that we needed to start, we needed to recognize um, that, that uh, this revolution was going to fundamentally transform the context of global power, which is what is, is happening now, so, and that we need to start planning for that. So this is fascinating. So you had these two areas that were completely different, national security and biology, Nobody had really looked or explored the intersection before, probably because biologists stay in their room. Right. National security guys stay in their room. You are probably above average in national security, probably below average in biology. Yeah. But when you intersected them and wrote in a prominent journal, you were probably the best in the world or close to it at the intersection. So that's why the national security advisor of the country right. calls you. Right. Because he doesn't have anyone else to call. No one else is in the intersection. You went to the place least crowded. Yeah, and, and I wasn't, I mean, I went to a place that was least crowded, 
But that wasn't the strategy. The strategy was there's this world that I know, this world that I don't know, and really important things are happening at these, those intersections. And then it comes back to our conversation about expertise. If you are in a domain of expertise and there are lots of people standing where you're standing, you really, it's, it's hard to do something that's really new. You can be great at that thing, but it's, it's at these intersections. And there are all kinds of intersections in life that we can really make new discoveries and new contributions. And that's frankly how so many things move, move forward, that there are insights about everything embedded in everything else. And I think so, part of our mission of being thinking human beings is looking with as broadly as we possibly can and trying to make these kinds of connections. So, so like if you're, if you've advanced far in a career, but not as far, like you feel yourself hitting a little bit of, wall, of a wall or the acceleration slowing, start reading other areas that interest you because there's always going to be some way to connect the dots, to find that intersection where yeah. you could be uh, not necessarily special, but where you have something to say. And then it's important, I think it's really important to note that you did something. You didn't just think about it. You didn't just talk about it in a cocktail party. You actually wrote, you thought enough about it that you were able to write something that was publishable in some journal that was then read by you know, yeah. top ranked people. And then, okay, what's the next step? Because then there's still a lot of knowledge of genomics. So these two principles that, that got to that point, one is that we all need to kind of think like jazz musicians. And when we're, when we're trained in our disciplines, we're thinking like classical musicians. And with mm -hmm. classical musicians, the notes are there and you can do a great job of playing those notes. But with jazz, the notes are there, there is a composition, but you need to kind of find the place, find your own voice and find your own play. And the second thing is you need to have confidence in to go there. I mean, there are lots of people who are classical musicians who are, I'm sure, thinking, well, I guess I could do something different, but you're, you're with, within the, those boundaries. And so you just need to have the confidence to take that risk. And so many people ask this question, like, who am I? Who am I to do something that's, that's new or at, at, at this seam or, or this, this intersection? And I just think that those kinds of risks, those are things that can change people's lives. Well, actually, the music example is great because if you think of every great musical group, they're usually intersecting other styles. Like Rolling Stones intersected the new form of rock and roll with the blues from the right. 40s and created their very unique right. sound. Uh, and, and you see this all the time in hip hop music. You know, you take, uh, uh, you know, take some old song, uh, throw in a hip hop beat and have someone rapping over it and you've got this amazing intersection. The, the Fugees had a song, Stayin' Alive, which or I, I forget the exact title, mm -hmm. but they took the Bee Gees, Stayin' Alive, put a hip hop beat to it, Lauryn Hill and, and Wyclef rapping over it, and boom, it, it's guaranteed to be a number one hit. Yeah. So, so, okay, so what was the next step in learning? You're still on your path to being yeah. so, the world's genomics expert right. without any <laughs> education at all. Yeah, I, I have education, I don't have formal education. Um, so then, the, the um, testimony, I, I, I'm writing more articles, I'm speaking a lot, I'm testifying before Congress, and now I have this platform. Did, did you get pushback from other biologists and genomicists? No, only from my brothers who are physicians. <laughs> I was like, why are you testifying before Congress? But, but nobody was like, nobody saw you testifying for Congress and was like, hey, I'm a professor at Harvard on this, why am I not? No, but the thing is, how could they? Because 
let's say you're a professor of biology, what do you know about national security? And let's say you're a professor of international affairs, by and large, what do you know about biology? And that was, that was the point of having this, this intersection. All right, so, but now this was uh, 2000, let's say we're in, in 2008. So I, I start to have this, this uh, platform. I'm still in my, as I always am in this, in this process of learning. And then I had kind of different paths that I could go. One was um, to say, well, I'm on this path of this intersection of biology and national security. Um, and I thought about this. I, I was actually approached by um, a, 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 an agent after I testified. I said, well, let's do a book on the intersection of biology and national security. And I, and I thought about that. I even put, started to put a proposal uh, together to write that book. But then I, I had a really kind of, it was an important turning point for me because in my, my first book that I'd written had been a history of the Cambodian genocide. And I'd, um, after writing that book, which was a revision of my PhD dissertation, it was kind of important but inaccessible. So my second book was my novel, The Depths of the Sea, which told the story of the Cambodian uh, genocide, but as a story with characters and, and a thriller in, in, in some ways. And so now I thought, you know, rather than just go down this path of writing a, a nonfiction, at that point it would have been a lot drier than, than this book, um, I wanted to kind of bring people into the story. And so that was why I wrote my two sci-fi novels, Genesis Code and Eternal Sonata. Again, it was taking this nonfiction content, but saying, well, what's a way that I can bring my unique voice to this? That, and so when, you, when I was writing sci-fi novels, um, nobody could say, well, you don't have a PhD in biology, or, you know, I, mean, I guess I had, had the background in, in, in national security, and they couldn't say you're not a novelist because I've already written Okay, well, well, let me answer this. So you're yeah. intersecting now with another thing, which yeah. is writing fiction, yeah. which is not an easy skill either. Yeah. You can't just say, well, then I wrote and published a novel. Yeah. Millions of people try to do that and fail. Yeah. How did you learn to write a novel? Like a lot of people sometimes write about a topic and then forget all about plot, character yeah, yeah. development, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. making it exciting, having cliffhangers. Like, how did you learn to write a novel? And it can't be just, you read a lot of novels. Like, how did you actually learn to write a yeah, novel? No, it's, it's a great question. So I have to go back a little bit. So um, um, after, I, so I was started my PhD at Oxford. I left for two years uh, to work with the UN in Cambodia as a human rights officer. Um, when I was in Cambodia, I mean, this was just the end of the Civil War. I, I was just this young kid from Kansas City. I saw all kinds of really kind of crazy stuff, you know, tons of political murders, ethnic massacres. You would see the political murders? I didn't see them happening, but I would be like, we would, that was my job, we'd fly in in a helicopter a few hours later and, and there would be, I mean, these mass casualties. I mean, that was our job was to try to figure out how the UN could respond to this terrible violence. And it was really incredibly traumatic uh, for, uh, for me. I mean, I didn't have the language then, but I think when I, after two years, when I went back to Oxford to finish my PhD, like I feel like I had something, I wouldn't, I wouldn't label it this, but on the spectrum of PTSD, I mean, it was kind of just with my normal, when I went back to this other world, my normal just seemed like, wow, that's, that's not normal. That's kind of terrifying. So I finished my, my PhD and was very focused on, on that, but I realized there was all this emotional residue that I, that is like, I hadn't gotten it out and that PhD is, is, is very structured. And I realized that I, what I wanted to do was write a novel. And so I knew the content. I mean, it was fictional characters and, and, and I came up with the story, 
Um, but then I didn't know how to really structure or write a novel. Um, and so then what I started doing, so at that point, um, I, for a summer, I was working for Mel Carnahan, who was then, uh, unfortunately now deceased, uh, the governor of Missouri. And I was, my parents were in Kansas City and I was driving back and forth to Jefferson City. And I would, always, I would check out these Clive Cussler novels from, on audio tape. Um, from the Jefferson City, Missouri Public Library, and I would try. I listened to just all of these Clive Cussler novels, and they're fun novels. But just the way that he structured those novels, I really learned a lot from this. Like, so, so you so you listen slash read yeah. to a bunch of like best selling yes. novels, as opposed to like Ernest Hemingway, who is very literary and a great writer, but might not be. The, he's not going to have a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. He's not, he's right. not writing thrillers. You wanted to specifically write something people would buy. So you read, let's say, 20-plus tw yeah. thrillers. And how did, you, how did you break apart the structure? Like, how did you analyze the structure? So, um, what, what were the things you noticed about, like, yeah. a typical Clive Custler? Yeah, yeah. So because, because what I then, and even now, normally read, left to my own devices, I read nonfiction and literature. I don't read that many thrillers. I don't read that many once in a while and I read them, enjoy them kind of what are like beach novels. So and these were like, you were just like focused. My, my like you're mission, gonna, how are you doing it? Like yeah. you're the you know country's best selling thriller writer. How are you doing it? And it was really useful because the way that he was doing it was that there was a story and then he broke down the story into chapters where each chapter was written from the perspective of a different character. And it was a way to kind of build suspense because you go like, who knew what, when? And it was like a jigsaw puzzle. And for me, the way my mind works, I mean, I'm always trying to like decipher puzzles. And so then I kind of mapped out what I thought that puzzle would, uh, would look like. And then once I did that, then it was broken into chunks, which I guess is, an, is another lesson that you, you can't kind of swallow the ocean in one gulp, but you can swallow, you probably shouldn't do it, uh, this is a bad metaphor, but you can swallow a little bit of salt water and it, and it won't kill you. Um, and so then I kind of broke it down into these chapters and then I kind of, I got rolling. And, and, and I guess the other thing is, especially when you're starting out something, your first, your first draft is probably going to suck. Right. Kind of everything, and especially if you're coming from the outside. But you can't get discouraged. You just need to keep at it. So with that novel, I just kept revising and revising. And then I thought, well, I guess I should try to get an agent now. And I reached out to like, I, there was like a little book, writers and editors, and they had a list of agents. Um, and I read but, but wait, before yeah. that though, just in terms of like, yeah. again, uh, figuring out what the structure of a good yeah. novel is. Okay, a bunch of characters, no different pieces of information. Yeah. Did he, how did he, what was... How did you, how did he structure a plot so that it would yeah. be a thriller? Yeah. Like how did, uh, uh, he, did you, did you get a sense that he outlined? Yeah, yeah, did, I did. did, did was there cliffhangers at the yeah, end of each yes, chapter? mapped it out, uh, cliffhangers at the end of each, uh, 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 of each chapter. Um, you start out with something that really gets your attention. And in my case, it's a dead body, but just some uh just some kind of new thing so how, how far from the first sentence was the first dead body in your, in your oh so well, well so in genesis co so in in the depths of the sea which was my cambodia novel um you know in the first few pages there's a murder and then everything and then, then 
then the story starts at, an, at a different time that you don't know where it's leading, but it's leading to that, uh, to that murder. In Genesis Code, uh, the body um, uh, start, the, 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 the first chapter starts with a dead, uh, dead body. And in Eternal Sonata, the first chapter starts um, with this uh, demented geriatric scientist who's disappeared from an old age home in Kansas City. Okay, so right away, you get people going with some right. high stakes moment. Right. And then is there a cliffhanger? Like how, is there a cliffhanger at the end of each chapter? Like how do you get yeah. people continuing? Yeah. Uh, do you, do you follow the arc of the hero? Were you aware of that? Yeah, so I, I mean, I was, you know, we're all kind of aware of the arc of the hero because it's been fed to us um, by, uh, through Joseph Campbell into yeah. Star Wars. So yeah. kind of everybody, Everybody has in, internalized that, and because of uh, me, because I'm kind of an internal person, I like to think of, of the internal um, narratives of each character, like what's driving them, how are they feeling, what are their emotions, and, and it has to be, for these kinds of, of thrillers, it has to drive towards some action. So, so, so for every action that happened, you had to make sure, at least you were aware, what are the emotions of the characters yes. and how that could be expressed and what they're doing. Yeah, and you had to inhabit those characters enough so that it would allow them to surprise you. Each character had to have their why yes. on each page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then did you have a sense of, okay, here's the different points I need to reach and then you would reach them? You know, I did have that sense. Sometimes I would reach them. Sometimes these characters, who were all obviously versions of, of me or, or my projections, would wind up in other places. And then I have to go back and say, oh, well, geez, this happened. How do we move the, the pieces around? So it was very much um, like that there was an outline for sure, but then strange things happened. And I think that with this kind of novel writing, you kind of have to let go uh, a little bit. Right, because if you don't surprise yourself, it's going to be hard to surprise the reader. Yeah. Like if you're, if it's too easy for you to just plot right. it out, they're going to be able to predict what's happening. Right. So you kind of have to surprise yourself sometimes. Yeah, surprise yourself. Like just like at the end of a chapter, and then he died. And, or, it's, and it's like in all of life, you have to be open to surprises. And even in a world that you've created, it's like you, you set these, these, these characters in motion and it's impossible to, to know in the beginning exactly how they might interact and, and just kind of have that, that openness and then allow yourself to shift, which kind of comes back to our original thing is that when you're, when you're learning in a new space, your path is not known. And that's what's so exciting about it. And it's scary and it, and it probably means that you'll, you'll bump into more dead ends than people who are just working inside of a discipline because Inside of a discipline, the dead ends have already been identified. And so, you know, when you're three steps in the direction of the cul-de-sac, someone will say, oh no, that's a known cul-de-sac, go the other way. Right, so as you're intersecting, so now you're intersecting national security, biology, science fiction, you're, it's, you're, in a sense, you're really creating your own genre, your own field, the, the art of science fiction, genomic, national security writing. Yeah, and, and, well, that was and you're gonna hit dead ends. And, no, no, and, and, and everybody has it. So I was writing these novels and I couldn't have written this book, Hacking Darwin, if I hadn't been a novelist first on this topic. Because then um, when I was having to think about this science the way, and think about its human applications and implications, that was a very different way of thinking about science 
than just through the science, than just say, all right, here's the science, what does it mean? It was like, well, if I'm imagining myself as a character interacting with this science, what does it mean for me? So you had to do a lot more research into the science. Yeah, of course. Now you're yes. getting, now yes. that character, it's like you're getting personally involved exactly. in the science. You're not just writing it from a policy point of view. Exactly. And, and because I had to understand it in my way, and then I had to translate it into novels that was where there was very real science, but so subtle or trying to be so subtle that the reader doesn't get to this point. It's like, oh shit, like now here's the science and now I'm bored or get, get frightened of it. Because I have, I have friends in Washington who, who also have written novels and I like the, the, the best Washington novels are novels. The worst of them are policy memos with a sex scene thrown in. Right, right. Like I sort of feel like a lot of bad novels are, I want to say something about climate change. They write a novel and there's just no good story there. Yeah, yeah. It's just the yes. world's exploding and exactly. someone has to save it and they don't have any any emotional baggage or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and so, so with me, I needed to sneak in the science so that people wouldn't feel like, oh, the story is stopped. Um, but enough so that people could, when they got to these critical parts of the story, they could understand how they got there, whether it was the science of uh, human genetic engineering or the science of life extension. Um, and so that, that was this tricky part, but it, it forced me to really think about not just understanding science, but understanding the science well enough so that I could communicate it simply. Whenever I meet experts and they're, they're communicating things to me and it's full of, of jargon, I have, I have less respect for that. So I think the people who I meet who are the greatest experts, the way I define it, the people who, who can understand all of that jargon, but they found, I think it's Jim Collins, the, the simplicity on the other side of, of complexity, because to be able to communicate, and especially with this revolutionary science that's gonna change all of our lives, I mean, it's, it's pretty important that we all be part of the conversation. So, so you have, the, again, this core hub of genomics is gonna be big. So now you gotta learn about biology, yeah. but you learned it to the extent that, you know, you could, it's really important to do something. So you, you learned it enough and you were able to explain it enough that you took your experience at national, Secu national security and wrote a publishable paper. Then you had to understand it enough to be able to testify in front of Congress, which is scary because it's not just a static paper. You have to prepare right. for questions that these right. senators are gonna ask. And so, you have to be able to respond and not seem like a fool. And you have to be able to kind of talk to the National Security Council, whatever. And then you have to learn it to the extent that you could then write about it in a novel. So all these requires different types of learning and studying right. and yeah. nervousness. And what's the next step? Yes, yeah, so anyway, the next step was when I was on my book tours for the novels and I would just explain the science to people in my way, which is because I had to fight to understand it in these, these simple terms. I saw people's, in people's eyes that they were suddenly realizing the story, mm -hmm. that they heard the words, but they were so afraid um, that when they heard the word genetics or DNA or IVF or, or PGD or, or whatever, it just sounded like scary science. But when I communicated it as not scary science, it's just like it's part of a story. It's the story of us. It brought them into the conversation. And that was when I realized that I needed to write this book which told the, it's the greatest story of our lives and of, and of all time, the story of us, but I needed to tell it in a way that was accessible to people. But, but also when we talked previously about the book, you've talked to many scientists also, like 
now the world's greatest genomicists mm -hmm. have spoken to you. Right. That also seems to be a critical way to learn. You know, Huge. now that you've explained it to senators and you've explained it to the masses through a novel, to write this book, you also needed to kind of, where's the cutting edge? Where yeah. are we? So you had to call the, the George churches, yeah. you know, the, the greatest right. genomicists around. You had to call these people. How did you call them, get them to talk to you, know what to ask? I know them all, or not all, I know lots of them because I've been in this world. I mean, for years I've been speaking at the genetics conferences. So George is, is a great example. I mean, he's, he's our living uh, Charles Darwin geneticist at, at Harvard. Uh, and he and I have done events together for years. And why, again, he respects you, from what you said earlier, he respects you because you're bringing in this national security viewpoint and you're, you're able to describe your importance to him by saying, hey, the world needs to know about this. I've got this connection, you know, I've got this, I'm this tunnel into the government, you know, that you don't necessarily but have. But I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that. Um, it's not that. Because he that, still has to respect you before he's going to yes. teach you. And so there's a few things. One, I mean, Georgia, we do a lot of, of speaking alongside one another. And he always says um, that um, the way he does his work is he reads science fiction novels like mine and then thinks, oh, that's pretty cool. How might we do that? And I always say, you know, I read uh, papers coming out of labs like Georgia's and I think, wow, that's pretty cool. What are the long-term implications uh, of that? So that was probably the start of that and, 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 and other relationships. Um, but certainly with this, with this book and even the work that I was doing uh, before then, um, what I'm trying to do is two things. One is to imagine the implications of this science because the scientists themselves, they're actually doing the lab work. I don't do the, the lab work. But it's very, it's very rare. I mean, George is a great example of someone who does this, but most scientists don't have the time or the inclination or the background to think about what are the big picture implications of their, of their work. I was in Kyoto a few months ago and I was in the world's, one of the world's leading stem cell labs. And I was meeting with five or six of the top postdocs. And I asked two questions and it went around at this, at this lunch. I said, first, tell me about the work that you're doing now. And second, tell me what you think are the implications of this work for 50 years from now. Question one, everybody, there was so much energy and excitement. Question two, they would like hold on to the table and like they couldn't answer because that, that wasn't who they were. So I, what I was doing was imagining um, what are helping them imagine and, and just imagining on my own, what are the implications of this work? Because that's, that's really important. And then communicating that to the public in a way that people could absorb. And so, scientists are terrible at that. So some, in some ways, in a, a lot of this is about bringing the target closer so you can hit the bullseye. Right. So, okay, when you first get interested in genomics, you're not gonna just suddenly stop speaking about it until you get a PhD and do lab work. You're gonna bring the bullseye really close. You're gonna learn enough so that you can write a paper yes. in a national security uh, uh, journal. So you don't need to know the full right. foundations of genomics. Then, okay, you're gonna bring the bullseye closer again, but you're gonna learn more, you're gonna do it in a science fiction novel context. Now that has a romantic sound to it, so now all these genomicists are saying, oh, okay, he understands it enough to write a science fiction novel, that's neat, mm -hmm. I will talk to him. And then even then, you bring the bullseye close as they explain to you what the implications are. Maybe they can't understand it 50 years from now because that's not their training, so you bring it closer and closer so they can't explain one year from now, this is what could happen. This might be their next right. research. 
And then you're, or you're again, using this intersections to assimilate it all and then write this book. Yeah. And then, and the thing is, it's like you should hit, put the bullseye as far from you as you can, where you have the possibility of reaching it. Like do hard things as hard as you can do. But if the bullseye is too far and you're just kind of shooting your arrows into the mud, what's the, what's the point? Right, like if, you, if you had asked people, what's the implications of this 500 years from now? It almost doesn't make sense. So it might even not make sense for you to think that way. So you're bringing the, the bullseye close enough where you could make that leap and start guessing. Yeah. And then you try to say, okay, well, what knowledge do I need to understand what I'm guessing? Yeah, and, and, the, and you have, if, even if you're making a guess and everything that we're doing, anticipating the future is in some ways a guess, you have to be able to defend it. And you have to be able to defend it in front of all kinds of people. So this book, I mean, certainly I'm thrilled um, that you know, all kinds of people are reading it, but among them are the world's greatest geneticists and, I, and, and others and scientists. Um, and so it needs, this is a book that needs to work for high school kids and it needs to work for the world's uh, greatest experts. And I'm, I'm happy to say that that is what's, what's happening. And what I'm hearing uh, from the scientists and the doctors is that they weren't able, most of them weren't able to have this kind of big picture perspective because it's not what they do. Right, and also getting a PhD, you're forced to specialize yeah. so in, into such minutia, it might not even be useful, but it gets you the PhD. So and it may be useful for doing lab work on that or even in an adjacent area, but it's not useful for imagining what are the big picture implications of your work. So it's, it's really interesting because like you said, you haven't done the lab work, but the lab work creates the bricks and the, with the bricks, you can build yes. the house. So like, imagine if you were to start afresh and you wanted to learn quantum mechanics, yeah. okay, it's the same thing. You're not, uh, you're not going to necessarily know every physics equation and 12 years of calculus and everything like that, but you know, okay, here's what happens with two particles that do this and that. Now you might have a guess. Oh, does this mean time travel is possible? Does this mean right. uh, faster than light travel is possible? And so you can start learning. Maybe you could take, start reading pop physics books. Maybe then you could write, uh, what does quantum mechanics mean? What are the 10 implications for quantum mechanics and national security? You can pick one, write the, do enough research to write the paper, maybe interview people. Uh, you can write the science fiction novel or do some other way, like explain to kids. Here's how time travel would work in quantum mechanics, or here's how a quantum mechanics bomb would work, or whatever. And then, uh, then it brings you full circle to the experts, like, hey, I'm, I'm not getting in the way of what you're doing. I'm talking about a science fiction novel with quantum mechanics time travel. Let's, you know, compare notes, and now you know enough to talk intelligently about it. And it just sort of builds and builds. And as you go along this path, you realize there are things that you'll have, everyone will have gaps, things that you need to learn. You need to be learning, just being really honest with yourself. Here's what I know. Here's what I need to know. You need to be constantly learning and exploring. You need to be constantly looking for other fields uh, because if you're in these conversations and you're able to bring, you know, the, the, let's say the world's you know, leading geneticists, they aren't experts in all these other fields that are relevant to genetics. They may not be experts in, in AI or big data analytics or music or whatever. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that can be brought together. And I think that's, that's the goal. So it's like this process, um, uh, it's this virtuous cycle. The more that you do, 
the more interesting it is, the more engaged you are, the bigger set of, uh, of relationships that you have uh, that can help you do it, and the more impactful your, your work. And so it's almost like you know, building a pontoon bridge, um, and it's like little segment by little segment. And then you say, oh shit, I have to build like a traditional bridge, and you're, I'm on this side of the river. It's like, well, how am I possibly gonna do that? But a pontoon bridge, you just kind of keep adding to it. You kind of, you kind of create your own bridge made out of the yeah. different materials from your own life yeah. and that you pull in. And it, may, and it may not be like the perfect bridge. And when people look at it, they may say, well, that bridge looks like kind of a mishmash because where I come from, we just get the prefab pieces of the pontoon bridge and we just put them and we go across the bridge. And, and what I would say is well, that's one bridge and that will get you across the river in one way but my bridge is a different kind of bridge and it's going to get me across the river in a different way. And when I get there, I'll be in a different place. Well, like you said, there's many dead ends, but because people in the field have avoid, you know, they taught how to avoid the dead, or they're taught how to avoid the dead ends. You've probably encountered some dead ends. Yeah. So I'll ask this final question. What, at what point during this whole, you becoming essentially one of the world's experts on explaining this very incredibly complicated field, at what point did you most make a fool out of yourself? <laughs> it's a, uh, a great question. And the answer is probably the entire way. And just in the sense that a lot of people, my, my brothers, first among them, has always said what you started, who the fuck are you? Like, why are you, are you here? Why is the Senate calling you? Yeah, exactly. Is it calling me? No, exactly. And the thing is, that question, you just have to get it out of, out of your, we all have to get it out of our system because um, like we're just here and everybody is contributing. And if, if you are doing something in good faith and holding yourself to the highest standards and saying, well, if I'm going to make a statement, I better be able to, uh, to back that statement up. That's the, that's the thing. And, but then also you have to be, be creative about what statements you're going to make and you have to know enough to make those statements. Yes. You always have to start with that. It seems like there's, there's a one-two process in the very beginning, which is what's exciting me and how can I learn the yes. basics? The, 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 brick, the cement has been poured, the bricks have been built, but how can I at least learn the bricks and how to start building yeah. a wall? And, and, and the, in the what's exciting me, um, you have to be, let, don't have like a, a fixed membrane around that. So there's what's exciting me now, but that's going to change as you learn more stuff that seemed boring will become exciting because everything is exciting. Knowledge is exciting. Learning is exciting. And it's all interesting once you kind of are just able to look at things from their own terms. I think that's the goal. And, and we live in a world that's changing so rapidly that even the world's greatest experts in whatever field it is, like their knowledge is getting stale every minute. And so we all have to be just constantly learning and constantly exploring. And that's the way that we're going to stay relevant and involved and engaged in this world that is, is going to change at a rate that is not only faster than ever before, but will constantly and always be increasing. So what are three recent books you've read where you feel you've learned the most, where you feel like, mm. oh, my knowledge, my, I, I feel like my IQ just went up because I read this book. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one book that I just read <clears throat> that I absolutely loved by really one of my favorite 
novelist is called Orfeo by Richard Powers. Uh, and Richard, actually, he just won the, uh, the Pulitzer uh, this year, but he's written 12 other books and just such an incredible, wonderful genius. So I certainly... What did you learn? I was just, I mean, about, I mean, I didn't learn about science. I learned about the human condition. And so it's this wonderful story of this uh, guy in his 70s who's a, a retired composer. Um, but he, um, he becomes obsessed with biology because he sees like this ultimate form of composition in biology. Uh, and so, and he creates this lab to explore the limits of biology. Um, but then he's, uh, he's accused of being uh, part of this, uh, this terrorist plot. And so he basically goes on this, this trip across the country um, to kind of go actually and visit his daughter. Um, but while he does, he kind of revisits the story of his life. And so I just really, for me, just like, like science, it's, it's, it's the world of science, but the real implication of science and what does it mean for us? And that's not just on a scientific level. It's also on an emotional level. Okay. Orfeo, book okay. number two. The second, uh, the earth shall weep, which is a history of native Americans. And it's just, it's so everybody living in this country, like we have, we are living in this land that was populated by these, these people who are ancestors. And my ancestors you know, weren't pilgrims, but we all have a collective responsibility. We just decimated them. And it's just so um, unimaginable that this crime has been committed in our name. Uh, and it's been done in, in such, so severely um, that we, that, like we don't even have to face it every day. You know, it's interesting because again, history is written by the victors, mm -hmm. right? So I read something, I was researching something else and I read something the other day that surprised me. You know, the largest uh, mass legal execution in US history was in 1862, Lincoln ordered the execution of all of these South Dakotan, I guess Sioux Indians mm -hmm. Uh, I forget how many, but it was the largest yeah. one. And it's right at the spot really where Mount Rushmore is now carved oh. with Lincoln's face it's, in it. It's, and we would never be taught that at all in so history books. It's so terrible. It's so terrible. And then for the third one, and then I need to go because I'm getting picked up by my, and I'm really late for my CNN car, um, which is um, uh, the third one very quickly is um, called We Contain Multitudes by Ed Young, which is the, the story of the microbiome. And it's just, it's such a great book and, and really fascinating. Excellent. Learning how to learn. Thanks so much. All right, thanks, See you James. later. My pleasure. All right. See Go you. to Bye. CNN. <laughs>